From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Ainsley O'Neill. And I'm Jenny Doring. The big UN climate talks are fast approaching with oil CEO Sultan Al-Jaber at the helm. This isn't just an oil guy becoming COP28 president. This has been a years-long campaign to really build his reputation on the international stage. The real key has been the role of PR agencies and political strategists and these big public figures who have endorsed him. Also, every extra bit of warming puts Antarctica's ice closer to the edge. And so we're really worried about West Antarctica because if it does, what we have seen happen in other places, if we pass a point of no return for West Antarctica, it's a lot of sea level rise. We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Ainsley O'Neill. And I'm Jenny Doring. So Ainsley, you know that saying, if you find yourself in a hole, then you should stop digging, right? Exactly. But the world is continuing to dig and drill to extract coal, oil, and gas at the very moment that we really ought to be phasing these fossil fuels out. That's the essence of a new report from the United Nations Environment Program and Partners that finds that countries are planning to produce double the fossil fuels in 2030 than would be consistent with the Paris Agreement goal to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. The 2023 Production Gap Report noted that major producing countries have put forth ambitious pledges to achieve net zero emissions, but they're moving in the other direction when it comes to fossil fuel production and use. Countries are on track to produce nearly five times the amount of coal and nearly double the gas than would be compatible with the Paris goal. At the launch of the Production Gap Report on November 8th, Steering Committee member Andrea Guerrero-Garcia reflected on the obstacles to changing course in countries like her native Colombia, which is rich in coal. It kind of keeps me up at night, to be honest, because the challenge in front of us is very, very big. We have to first have the political will, and some of these countries, including my own, now have expressed that political will, but they need the support as well to do this. So while we seem to have come a long way from outright opposition to change, actually making the shift is much harder. Well, Jenny, I know there's a lot of interest from governments and private industry in carbon capture and storage, which would theoretically collect the emissions from fossil fuels before they can warm up the planet. What did the report say about that? Yeah, this was a pretty important takeaway from the report. The authors said that because of all the uncertainty about whether carbon capture and storage technology would actually work, Countries can't count on it and should still plan to phase out coal use by 2040 and cut most oil and gas use by 2050. Responding to the report in a statement, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said, We cannot address climate catastrophe without tackling its root cause, fossil fuel dependence. COP28 must send a clear signal that the fossil fuel age is out of gas, that its end is inevitable. And Ainsley, as you know, COP28 will take place this year in the oil-rich United Arab Emirates. Right. We've covered the outcry from climate activists over the fact that the head of the state oil company is also the COP28 president. Yes. Sultan Al-Jaber is CEO of Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, or ADNOG. And to some, that role should disqualify him from leading a UN process that's trying to avert the climate crisis. For others, like U.S. climate envoy John Kerry, that's actually a plus and means that Al-Jaber is uniquely positioned to bridge the gap between the fossil fuel industry and a new green economy. Sultan Al-Jaber is himself the climate envoy for the UAE and has also led the state-owned renewable energy company Mastar. His critics question the substance of these green credentials and are appalled that an oil executive now sits at the very heart of the United Nations climate process a paradox that's attracted the attention of the online publication The Intercept. Ben Stockton is a freelance investigative journalist with the Center for Climate Reporting who wrote about this for The Intercept, and he joined me to explain. This has been a years-long campaign to really build his reputation on the international stage, make him a legitimate person to be able to do that. You know, his work on climate issues goes back to the mid-2000s. He began at Mastar in 2006, the state-owned renewables company, and then 
after almost a decade of doing that, he then moved on to become the CEO of Adnoc. And while he's been at Adnoc, we've really seen the messaging change, their kind of public messaging certainly change around their role in helping abate climate change. So, for example, we've seen a lot more messaging from Adnoc around the fact that they are one of the least carbon intensive oil companies in the world. And that is something that is really a marked shift from how they were communicating in the past. So what strategies has Al Jaber used to shape that image over the past few decades? I think the real key to the change in that communication at Adnoc and how Al Jaber has presented himself on the world stage over the last 15 years has really been the role of PR agencies and political strategists and these big public figures who have endorsed him. And there are probably no more important PR agencies than Edelman, the kind of biggest American PR firm, certainly one of the most influential, and a company that continues to be involved in COP28. And they have done work with Al Jabba over the course of the last 15 plus years to really improve his international standing. If we go back to kind of mid-2000s when Al Jabba first started working with Edelman, a key task that he set for them was really engaging thought leaders and A remarkable incident in their kind of early work was actually getting then-President George Bush to come have a look at plans for Mastar City, which was this great eco-city that was set to be built just outside of Abu Dhabi that Al Jaber was promoting as the next big thing in sustainability. And Bush heaped praise on not only Mastar, but also the UAE. And that's really been a key part of Edelman's work for Al Jaber, is really legitimising him on the world stage and his green credentials. He then went on to testify in front of Congress, and there was Congress people who, again, were very complimentary of the UAE's work around climate change and its investment in renewables. And so it's really interesting that he seems to have courted these figures on the world stage over the years, continuing to today, where he has this remarkable relationship with John Kerry. Kerry has met with Al Jaber seemingly more than any other foreign official over the last two years since he became US climate envoy. And so in the kind of days after Al Jaber was announced as COP28 president, and there was understandably a lot of anger among climate activists, that here was this CEO of a major oil company appointed to kind of one of the most important UN climate summits. John Kerry was one of the first people to come out and say, actually, and I think the words that he used was a terrific choice to be a COP president. And we've seen multiple people come out very vocally in support of his presidency, who again have various ties or relationships to Al Jaber. And that's really been the culmination of this 15 years of work of really building his profile on the international stage to make sure that there was people around him, I think, when his COP presidency was announced to really defend him. So why are some climate leaders like John Kerry touting Al Jaber as a terrific choice for the COP presidency? I think it's the fact that Al Jaber kind of has one foot in each camp. He is climate envoy at the end of the day, but he is also the CEO of Adnoc, a major oil company. And there is a thinking within some circles that you really need to bring the oil and gas industry to the table, get them on board, and that's how meaningful change is going to be generated. I think the concern from the other side is that this is actually being used kind of cloak and dagger to be able to thwart negotiations at the conference and limit any meaningful outcomes. And really, whether that actually comes to fruition or not is yet to be seen. But Al Jabra is really seen as this person who can bridge those two camps. And Kerry is certainly of the feeling that he could really be instrumental in bringing along the industry. Tell me more, please, about the Mazdar City plans that he was involved in and what's come of that? Well, not as much as they promised, as it turns out. So it was in the kind of late 2000s when Al Jaber and Mazdar unveiled these plans for a kind of eco-futuristic city. And it was going to be carbon neutral and car free and it was going to house tens of thousands of people. And it was going to be this blueprint for sustainable city living. On the face of it, it was astonishing, but actually slowly over time, the deadlines for completion have been pushed back. The promises have been scaled down and now it was supposed to be on six square kilometres. They've only built two square kilometres to date. It was supposed to house something like 40,000 people and only 15,000 people live and work there now. And the car-free transport system has been scaled back. And so that has really not come to fruition in the way that it was promised, certainly in those early days. So fossil fuel companies, including Adnoc, the state-owned oil company in the United Arab Emirates, 
claim that they're committed to a transition to clean energy. To what degree have they delivered on those promises so far? Well, ADNOC is an interesting one because they do have long-term net zero goals and they actually recently brought forward their 2050 net zero target to 2045, which would suggest that they're moving in the right direction at least. And as I said, Al Jaber has really promoted the fact that ADNOC is the least carbon intensive oil company in the world, or at least among them. And so they have these targets in place and a lot of those targets are going to be met with technologies like carbon capture, which has obviously yet to be fully proven on a widespread commercial level scale. But actually, interestingly, while they're saying that they've got these net zero 2045 goals, actually in the short term, they're massively ramping up production capacity. And they actually even brought forward their production capacity increases that were set for 2030 to recently to 2027. So actually, it seems like they're ramping up even quicker than they previously had aimed to do. And I think that's really off the back of some of the energy security issues that have been brought about by the war in Ukraine. And so they're really kind of seemingly looking to capitalize on that and really cash in at a moment where there seems to be a high demand for oil. Ben, you report that some of the lines have actually been blurred between ADNOC, the state oil company Al Jaber runs, and the COP planning process. What's happened there? So I think some of the concern about COP28 is not just singled around Al Jaber's appointment as COP28 president and his role at ADNOC alongside that. It's also how that conflict seems to have filtered down further into the organisation. So one of the early stories that we did was looking at actually how individuals from ADNOC had been moved over to work on COP28. Some of those had even been seconded, so they seemingly had some ongoing role at ADNOC and were working on COP28. And recently we reported on the fact that one of Algebra's key comms people at ADNOC, Oliver Phillips, is also now working on COP28. And he has really been seemingly quite crucial in steering some of these PR strategies that we've been seeing with COP. And for a long time he was seemingly employed by the oil company. So where does all this leave Sultan Al-Jaber and the United Arab Emirates going into COP28? Well, one of the internal documents that we've seen from the Climate Envoy laid out some of the objectives for the UAE in COP28. And they really wanted to position Al-Jaber as a quote-unquote consensus enabler and a quote-unquote climate action leader. And it's really kind of yet to be seen whether he is going to be able to find that consensus. And that consensus really being between the climate activists or the more progressive climate folks and the oil and gas industry who are looking for more kind of pragmatic solutions to the climate crisis. But really, ultimately, it also leaves Algebra in charge of one of the most important international climate forums. The presidency is supposed to be impartial, is supposed to be neutral. And I think it's clear now that the fossil fuel industry, even though it has sent lobbyists and delegates by the boatload to previous COPs, is now closer than ever to the head of one of these summits. Ben Stockton is a freelance investigative journalist who reports with the Center for Climate Reporting. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks for having me. We reached out to the COP28 team for comment and did not receive a response in time for this broadcast. But during his reporting for The Intercept, Ben Stockton was able to reach COP28 spokesperson Alan Vandermolen. In response to the COP staff's alleged ties to UAE oil company ADNOC, Vandermolen said, The COP28 presidency has its own independent office, staff, and a standalone IT system. The COP28 staff are separate from any other entity and operate in coordination with the UNFCCC. He also maintained that Sultan Al-Jaber is a good choice for the role of COP president, saying, It is in our common interest to have someone with deep experience across the entire energy value chain in this role. His experience as a climate diplomat, serving two terms as the UAE's climate envoy and attending over 10 previous COPs, makes him ideally suited to lead a consensus-driven process. Coming up... 
If carbon emissions don't fall rapidly, a melting Antarctica could overwhelm coasts around the globe. That's just ahead. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. If you're one of Living on Earth's listener supporters, or if you've been considering a donation to LOE, this message is for you. As a nonprofit news organization, listener support is vital to LOE's weekly effort to bring you up-to-date environmental news and information. Your gift to LOE makes a difference and makes our work possible. So thank you. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jenny Doring. And I'm Ainsley O'Neill. On the line now from Atlanta, Georgia, is Peter Dykstra, the Living on Earth contributor who looks beyond the headlines for us. Hi there, Peter. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Ainsley, and I hope you're doing well as well. And something else that may be doing well if the science bears out, baby corals. We know that coral reefs are dying in just about all the world's oceans where they're present. But there's an experiment at a university in Taiwan where they've taken baby coral and frozen it. Then they thaw it out with a laser and implant it in adult coral. And in this early experiment, it's seeming to grow, giving some hope that we can artificially replace dying coral with baby coral that will continue to grow and thrive. Cryopreservation, that sounds like something right out of science fiction, Peter. But it sounds like the technology is still in pretty early stages. Yeah, it is. And remember that science that sounds like science fiction sometimes turns out to be science fiction, but sometimes it turns out to be science. So we're rooting for this one because this is one bit of science that may possibly someday do the trick for coral. Yeah, fingers crossed for some future good news. Now, Peter, what else do you have for us this week? Another preliminary study, this one from Finland. The study followed preschoolers who spent part of their school day out in nature, in uh, fields of heather, fields of blueberries, among forest floor cover. And the greenery apparently helped their immune systems. They grew larger numbers of T-cells, important in our immune response. They've also developed more anti-inflammatory molecules. And it could be a sign that if we educate our kids more in nature, that it could actually help their health. That's pretty incredible for Finland's preschoolers. I mean, I'm hoping that they finish that research for older children, too. Let's move on from that one. (laughs) All right, Peter. What do you have for us from the history books this week? November 15th, 1990. The president of the U.S. at that time was Papa Bush, George H.W. Bush, and he signed new amendments to the Clean Air Act, among other things. It made emissions that cause acid rain more scarce and took care of other toxic chemicals that our factories and automobiles belched out. It was a major upgrade for clean air in the United States. Well, Peter, I don't know much about the first Bush presidency. It was before my time. I didn't realize that he had strengthened such an important environmental law. Well, we should give credit where credit is due. And when he was first elected in 1988, the elder Bush promised that he would be, and he actually said this, the environmental president. He didn't do a whole lot other than the Clean Air Act amendments to justify that title. But those amendments helped end acid rain as a major scourge, particularly in forests in the U.S. East Coast. Yeah, Peter, I'm definitely glad that that's one less thing to worry about on a daily basis. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing us these stories, Peter. Peter Dykstra is our Living on Earth contributor, and we're going to talk to you again real soon. All right, Ainsley, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories on the Living on Earth website. That's LOE.org.
Alaska's ice shelves are the gatekeepers between the continent's glaciers and the open ocean. As the planet warms, these shelves shrink, exposing more and more ice, which just leads to more melting. This frozen continent rests under a massive ice sheet averaging more than a mile thick. But a recent study in Science Advances found that Antarctica had 68 ice shelves that shrunk significantly between 1997 and 2021, adding up to about 8.3 trillion tons lost during that time. Richard Alley is a professor of geosciences at Pennsylvania State University, and he joined Living on Earth host Steve Kerwood to shed light on what all this melting at the South Pole could mean for the planet. Yeah, so it is contributing to raising sea level a little bit. Normally, what an ice shelf does is they grow for a while. It grow and grow and grow, and then they break off one of these icebergs. And the icebergs can be huge. You know, you'll see the stories. It's as big as Delaware, or it's as big as the Isle of Man or something. So you expect them, most of them to be growing and then occasionally breaking off. What we've been seeing recently is a lot more breaking off than you would ordinarily expect. And that's letting the pile spread faster, and it's contributing a little bit to sea level rise. Sea level is rising, and it's rising because we're warming the ocean and the water expands. It's rising because we're melting ice in Antarctica a little bit, in Greenland a good bit, and especially in mountain glaciers. And the water that was stored up there, it runs into the ocean and makes it higher. And then we've got faster flow in Greenland and Antarctica into the ocean, which also raises sea level. By the way, that same study that we talked about in Science Advances showed that 29 ice shelves grew. I mean, what does that mean for the climate? Any good news there? It's what we'd expect. So the Ross Ice Shelf is a famous one. It sort of kind of ended at the same place for the last 6,000 years. And what it'll do is it'll advance, it'll grow until it takes a fairly large chunk of ice past Ross Island, and then that chunk breaks off. And then it'll grow, and then that chunk breaks off. And then it'll grow, and it's been doing this for 6,000 years. And so you expect most of the shelves to be growing most of the time, because the growing is fairly slow and the breaking off is fairly fast to make the iceberg. Now, continuing in our geology class for a moment longer here, as I understand it, much of the melting thus uh, so far has been really chipping away at the West Antarctica ice sheet. What's going on in the east? So the east actually is changing a little faster than we expected. The ice shelves love really cold water and really cold air, and they tend to show up in the coldest waters that are common in the world ocean. Warmer waters have an easier time getting up towards the West Antarctic than they do getting up towards the East for various reasons linked to the winds and the Amundsen Sea low in the atmosphere and a lot of things. So we've been worried about the West because it's easier for warm water to flow in there and attack. But there is some warm water sneaking in in places in East Antarctica that I think surprised a few people, me certainly. Now, one study that was recently published says that we have passed the point of no return for the West Antarctic ice shelves. What does that mean, and how soon are we going to feel the impacts of that? What we're worried about in West Antarctica, glaciers that go into the ocean have a tendency to be a little like a traffic jam that is hung up by a closed lane in the interstate. They end at a place which is very narrow. They're backed up behind that. They're trying to dump ice out into the ocean. And so the ice tends to end at a place which is fairly narrow and fairly shallow. If you kick it out of the bottleneck, it tends to retreat and dump the non-floating ice into the ocean until it can find another bottleneck to stabilize on. So when Vancouver discovered the ice in Glacier Bay in Alaska, there was no Glacier Bay. The entire bay where you go on a cruise ship now was full of ice. It was a mile thick in the middle. And then that ice was kicked out of the little narrow place that it ended by a little warming. And then John Muir watched the icebergs breaking off. Boom, 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 boom. And the thing backed up 60 miles 
and it thinned by a mile till it found some other place to stabilize. What we're worried about in West Antarctica and parts of East Antarctica is that the ice now ends in a bottleneck, a place that is fairly narrow and fairly shallow for dumping icebergs. And if it gets kicked out of there and retreats, there are these big, deep interior basins. And the next place it can stabilize is the Transantarctic Mountains, and that's about 11 feet of sea level rise. And so we're really worried about West Antarctica because if it does, what we have seen happen in other places, it's so much bigger that it's a whole lot of sea level rise. And so if we pass a point of no return for West Antarctica, it's a lot of sea level rise. What are we talking about? A lot of sea level rise? And when the sea level rise? Right. So it could be fast. And exactly how fast we have a very vigorous discussion going on in the community. Over a small number of hundreds of years, it clearly can happen. Some of our modeling, and some that I'm guilty of helping with a little bit, says that once it gets started, it could happen in a century or even less. And huge uncertainty attached to just how fast it could go, but it could be really scary fast, as our work shows. What's scary fast? So we have one model out of many that implemented what we hope is a better version of how icebergs break off the front of cliffs. And in that one, after warming gets large enough to really trigger the fast changes, it was 100 years to dump three meters of sea level, so something like 11 feet. Oh, my so, Professor Alley, let's talk a bit about some solutions here. How do we move forward towards a better outcome for Antarctica's ice? Antarctica's ice cares about warming. It cares about change. The ice shelves love the coldest water in the world ocean. And that means change is bad for them. Because if you change the winds, you change the currents, you change the temperature... It can't get better, but it can get worse. You can't bring in colder water because there isn't any colder water. So changing things is bad for Antarctic ice if you want to keep ice on Antarctica. And so finding the solutions that limit warming is really the thing that Antarctica wants. So if we were to implement the goal of the Paris Climate Agreement to keep warming below 1.5 degrees centigrade, or roughly 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit... Would that stop this process, or are we already losing these ice shelves? It is very clear that wherever we limit warming, we just missed something worse. Even if we were to dump all of West Antarctica, there's a lot more ice in East Antarctica. There's still a lot of ice in Greenland. So whenever we stop the warming, we just missed something worse. And that's maybe the most optimistic view of it, is that we can save a lot of ice very clearly. There's this new study out that says there's some chance that we're going to drive some loss from West Antarctica with the warming that we've already caused. But even this new study is actually clear that the most likely future, limiting warming limits melt of Antarctica, it limits sea level rise. How much sea level is trapped in the ice of Antarctica, by the way? Almost 200 feet of sea level, not quite, but pretty close to that. So if we melt it all, Noah would have been right, I guess. <laughs> yes, if we melt it all, we don't think we're going to melt it all. That's not on the table. But you can get 10 feet out of Antarctica, and it isn't a huge change for Antarctica. It's just a huge change for the coasts of the world. Now, over the years, we've seen that science, especially when it's been aggregated in the form of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has tended to be on the conservative side of seeing the rates of change that are happening in the ecosphere. That back in the earlier days, it was very much behind. It seems that more recent studies have been closer to what's really going on. But what are the chances that we are sort of understating the risk to our society? I know that's not really a fair question, but, you know, a lot of people are curious about this. Yeah, so it's a very fair question. I worked a good bit with the UN, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. I'm deeply impressed by what they do. It's a huge number of volunteers who are spending their nights and weekends trying 
to give the public the best they can do. But on sea level, it's clear that there has been a tendency to be on the conservative side, on the low side. And I think that's because of the nature of the uncertainties, that you make your best estimate, and those best estimates leave most of the ice on Antarctica. They leave most of the ice on Greenland. And so you can't be much better than that, but you can be worse. And so I think that we're finding out that there's an uncertainty in your estimate that usually means that you end up on the high side, not the low side for how much sea level rises. Before you go, Professor, you've been at this a while. How has your perspective changed? When I started in this field, the idea that we were going to limit warming was important. We knew that there was huge value in doing so. And I don't think we had much of a clue how we could do that. And I think we were very much afraid that it was going to be very, very expensive to do that. The amount of technological improvement that's happened since, what we've learned, solar cells, when I was a student, they put them on satellites. You probably had a hand calculator with a solar cell, and they weren't good for much else. And now, you know, the experts have looked at this and said that they are making the cheapest electricity in human history. The cheapest electricity in human history from utility-scale solar, from the International Energy Agency saying this. And I really do think now that we know how to fix it. Uh, we know how to fix it technically. We know how to fix it economically. I have served on committees with really brilliant and highly awarded economists whose work shows that we help the economy as well as the environment if we get busy on this. We haven't figured out how to do it politically yet, though, have we? <laughs> well, you have a lot of listeners. That's Penn State geologist Richard Alley speaking with Living on Earth host Steve Kerwood. If you enjoy the stories you hear on Living on Earth, please consider signing up for our newsletter. You'll never miss a show, and you'll have special access to show highlights, notes from our staff, and advanced information about upcoming live virtual events. The Living on Earth newsletter is sent to your inbox weekly. Don't miss out! Subscribe at the Living on Earth website, LOE.org. That's LOE.org. And by the way, you'll also find photos, links to more information, and a full transcript of every single show there. And we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us anytime at comments at LOE.org. That's comments at LOE.org. Just ahead, a dino fossil gathering dust in a museum finally brings a scientific breakthrough to help uncover a murky past. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. Here at Living on Earth, we work hard each and every week to bring you the most relevant and compelling environmental news. As a nonprofit organization, we count on you to help. Listener support is key to sustaining the environmental news gathering and reporting that you rely on. Please consider doing your part to support Living on Earth. A monthly donation is the very best way to ensure LOE's work continues week after week. To make your pledge of support, go to LOE.org and click Donate. And thank you for helping to keep LOE's nonprofit environmental media going strong. It's Living on Earth. I'm Ainsley O'Neill. And I'm Jenny Doring. The first of four Klamath River dams along the California-Oregon border has now been removed, with the rest to follow next year. Letting the Klamath flow free once again is expected to give salmon vital access to their spawning grounds upriver. It's also giving a boost to research on some other native species, including bats. Oregon Public Broadcasting reporter Christian Fodenwenzel has this story. At the bottom of the J.C. Boyle Dam, just outside Klamath Falls, stands an old shed. It's unremarkable in just about every way, except that it's home to a colony of bats. There's just a data gap on a lot of these species and really on bats in the Pacific Northwest as a whole. 
Kaylee Adkins is a conservation biologist with the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. She manages non-game species like pygmy rabbits, Sierra Nevada red foxes, and of course, bats. Stooping to fit in the old 1950s shed, she says it's unique in a couple of bat-friendly ways. First, it's tiny. Bats love to hide away. Second, it has a corrugated metal roof, so it gets nice and warm in the summer, perfect for rearing bat pups. But most importantly of all, the shed stands right above the dam's spillway, so there's a constant flow of water underneath it. We can assume that it gets pretty warm up at the top, but then there's almost like an air conditioning factor of the cool water running underneath it. There are holes in the floor so cool, moist air can flow in, and the bats can swoop out into the bug late in the evening. There are no bats here today. Adkins thinks the shed's being used as a nursery, and all the pups have grown and flown. The shed's purpose is to house machines that lift and lower water gates so that if the dam turbines need to be fixed, water can be diverted around the dam and out the spillway. Next year, it's scheduled to be knocked down along with the rest of the dam. Bats are a protected species, so when they need to be moved from a dam or someone's house, the state advises bat boxes be set up nearby to provide alternative habitat. As a state biologist, Adkins says she's constantly being asked, what's the best kind of bat box? Where should it be placed? And how big should it be? I went to the literature to try to understand and give a scientific explanation behind what I was recommending. And there just wasn't a whole lot of information available. Now she's using the dam removal as an experiment to figure out what kind of replacement bat boxes bats actually prefer and where's the best place to locate them. The first step involved tracking the bats, so she put up nets outside the shed to catch and tag them. She injected a microchip under their skin, just like vets do with dogs. We captured and tagged over 100 bats. Then she put up a series of different bat boxes in different locations. The first is just 100 yards from the old shed. The second is about a mile and a half away next to a lake. At each site, she installed several large bat boxes, which she calls bat condos. They're about the size of a carry-on suitcase and can hold the whole colony of 100 bats. She's also installed several smaller cylindrical bat boxes, which mimic the shape of a dead tree, their natural habitat. The boxes are on poles 10 feet off the ground to protect them from predators like skunks and raccoons. And they're in spots that Adkins thinks offer the right temperature and humidity. So we're looking for good morning sunlight, but then not a whole lot of midday or afternoon sunlight because we want it to warm up quickly in the morning, but not bake. (laughs) While some people are scared of bats, they're actually beneficial in a number of ways. They help keep insect populations under control, like mosquitoes and pine bark beetles. And in some areas, they even pollinate plants, but not in the Pacific Northwest. There's a note of urgency to the bat box study, too, because of a fungal disease known as white nose syndrome. It can cause mass bat die-offs. Bromwyn Hogan, who coordinates the U.S. Fish and Wildlife response to the disease, says it's gradually spreading west from the eastern U.S. and has been found in Washington and Idaho. So far, the fungus has not been detected in Oregon. In California, the fungus has been detected at very low levels. The fungus grows on the noses of bats and wakes them out of hibernation. They then spend scarce energy searching for insects that aren't around. Bat numbers are also declining because of habitat loss, the spread of wind farms, and a lack of insects. Back at J.C. Boyle Dam, the shed isn't likely to be demolished until next fall, so now Adkins waits in the knowledge that the colony could ignore her bat boxes altogether and disappear into the surrounding forest. But then, that's the nature of scientific experiment. For Living on Earth, I'm Christian Foden-Vansel. That story comes to us from OPB, Oregon Public Broadcasting. Paleontologists have discovered a new dinosaur, but the discovery has been almost 50 years in the making. In 1977, German geologists dug up a dinosaur fossil in Egypt's Karga Oasis. Over time, parts of that fossil went missing, and the specimen itself went largely forgotten, apart from a master's thesis written in the 90s. Decades more went by until an American scientist came across that paper and decided to delve a little deeper. And finally, in 2023, 
American, German, and Egyptian paleontologists came together to identify, describe, and name a new species of dinosaur, Igai Semku. From some leg bones and a few vertebrae, scientists learned that Igai Semku was a long-necked dinosaur from a group known as Titanosaurs. The scientists involved in the discovery say it sheds new light on Africa's dinosaurs during the late Cretaceous, a period which has previously been somewhat of a mystery for paleontologists on the continent. I spoke with the lead author of the 2023 paper that officially named Igai Semku a new dinosaur. Dr. Eric Gorsak is an assistant professor at Midwestern University, and he told me that complicated discoveries like these aren't uncommon in the paleontology world. You know, when we think about new dinosaurs, these new scientific discoveries, there's usually two stories. There's the scientific story, like the importance of that discovery in terms of our scientific understanding. And then there's also the human story, that the tracking of discovery and how this fossil came to be and the people behind it. I always like to think of those two stories as intertwined with one another. Well, let's talk a little bit about what we can gather about the dinosaur itself. So what did Igai look like and what did it eat? How much of that are you able to figure out? Yeah, that's a great question. It's challenging because the specimen itself, and this is true for paleontology, especially dinosaur paleontology or any kind of vertebrate paleontology, is that it's rare to find complete skeletons. Mm. It is not the opening scene in Jurassic Park 99.9% of the time. So the specimen is really about like 12 bones from the middle part of the animal. So we have a couple bones from the shoulder and arm, the backbones, a little bit of the hips and hind limbs. Um, so we're missing a lot of the neck, the head, and the tail of this animal. But we are able to find certain traits, certain characteristics of these bones to understand what group of dinosaur belongs to. And from there, we can compare it to more complete specimens to understand what it looked like. And sauropods typically have a very general body plan. Long necks, small head at the very end, large bodies, super long tail, kind of like brontosaurus and brachiosaurus. So it was belonged to that group of dinosaurs. Now, it wasn't that big of a dinosaur in terms of titanosaurs relatively. One thing about titanosaurs is that they also included some of the largest land animals who have ever lived. Um, so there's a reason why Titan is in the name Titanosaur. But also, the other cool thing about this group is that it also includes some of the smallest sauropod dinosaurs, something about maybe the size of a horse, which is still pretty big, but for this group, kind of small. And so I like to say you have titanosaurs and then you have titanosaurs in this group and everything in between, which is actually pretty wild. It's a really awesome group of dinosaurs. Quite the range, right? Mm -hmm. But EGI is somewhere in the middle, kind of what we call a medium-sized titanosaur, but still a big animal, probably about like 30 to 45 feet in length for a sauropod, which is actually kind of cool because there's another dinosaur from the same age rocks and areas that our team and Egyptian colleagues worked on a couple of years ago called Monsaurosaurus, which is roughly the same size as Iggyi. But the difference is Iggyi has a little bit more slender limb bones than Monsaurosaurus. Monsaurosaurus is a little bit stockier, a little bit more stout in its appearance. So at least we have these two different kind of sauropods, smaller and uh, within the late Cretaceous of Egypt, which is kind of cool. Yeah, and definitely plant eaters, so don't be afraid to pet it if it was alive. <laughs> <laughs> well, depending on the size, I might still be afraid of getting stomped on, you know? Yeah, there's that, too. Just, just be gentle. No sudden movements. <laughs> okay. Well, so when I think of dinosaurs, I think Brachiosaurus, Brontosaurus, Tyrannosaurus. Maybe you get Iguanodon in there. But none of those names quite sound like Igai Semku. Where did your team come up with the name for that, and what does it mean? There's like over a thousand species of dinosaurs. But of course, with like Tyrannosaurus, Brontosaurus, Apatosaurus, all the ones you just named, they've been around since more or less the very beginning of paleontology, dinosaur paleontology, when it got hot. So they're the stars. They got that premise for being described first and capturing the public attention and just living on. But we have so many new dinosaur species being discovered, especially in the past 20 years. But Igei Simhu is a actually ancient Egyptian and this is great because Dr. Lamana, co-author, works at the Carnegie Museum. And they have uh, an Egypt department that he knows the people of. And we got in contact with them. And we were just kind of spitballing ideas of just like the name of this dinosaur. We want to honor kind of the area where it came from and just Egypt and its rich history. And so with Lisa Haney, the Egypt department at the Carnegie, she kind of spitballed some like ancient deities, some ancient gods and uh, like lore from the area of the Western Desert where the specimen came from. So it was an ancient deity that this cult in the Western Desert worshipped. 
So it basically translates to the Lord of the Oasis. And titanosaurs are generally large animals, so it just kind of seemed fitting that the Lord of the Oasis was for this giant sauropod. And then Simku means forgotten from ancient Egyptian. So this is the forgotten Lord of the Oasis. Now, I kind of like the name because it kind of alludes to the story of the specimen. It was discovered in the 70s, chain spots in different universities through time, people working on it and coming and going. So it just kind of became this kind of like forgotten specimen. But also just kind of goes into the science story too, where we have ancient Egypt and ancient Africa during the time of the dinosaurs. We don't know much about the fossil record compared to other land masses. South America, North America are really good fossil records, Europe and Asia as well. Africa seems to have this kind of, we don't have a full understanding of what was happening during the age of dinosaurs. So in a way, it kind of alludes to that as well, this forgotten Lord of the Oasis, this forgotten dinosaur. What's going on there that means that Africa's fossil record isn't as well known as the other continents? Uh, that's a good question. And it's not to say, like, it has a bad fossil record. It all depends on your question and the age of the deposits of these rocks. Unfortunately, for, like, the Cretaceous of Africa, it's a bit more spottier than other continents. But part of that is that a lot of the continent is covered in grasslands, rainforests, and vegetation that access to those rocks is hard to get to. When you think about, like, out west in the desert, you have a lot of erosion happening, like here in the United States. Uh, to expose all that rock. And you don't have too much of that when you go south of the Sahara. And with the Sahara, you have a lot of exposed rock, but also a lot of sand in the way. But those age rocks and those kind of depositional environments are not the ones conducive for what's happening on like the terrestrial land, like for land animals that we're interested in with dinosaurs. So really awesome marine deposits, but not so much land deposits. So it's already spotty as is with the exposed rock in the kind of questions and the kind of dinosaurs that we're interested in, especially at the very end of the Cretaceous period, that last act of the age of dinosaurs. The story's being told but the geological writings are not preserved or never had the chance to preserve because of these ancient environments. So it's always been a challenge, but thankfully we're able to find some stuff and we're getting a better picture in the recent couple of decades. What is this dinosaur able to tell you about ancient Africa, ancient Egypt, sort of the paleo history of this? The Cretaceous, like I said, this last act of the age of dinosaurs, we have a pretty good fossil record in North America, South America, Europe, and Asia, most definitely. And by the end of the Cretaceous, Madagascar and India, we have all this kind of a good idea of what's happening on these continents at the very end. But Africa is still kind of this question mark. And the cool thing with Igii and Montsorosaurus I mentioned earlier is that they're filling in this gap towards the very end of the age of dinosaurs for Africa. And so what we can see uh, with the relationships based on the anatomy that is shared with Monsaurosaurus and Igii with surrounding landmasses and their titanosaurs is that we see that Igii and Monsaurosaurus has features that are closely related to those from Europe and Asia, more so than those from like Southern Africa or even Gondwana with like South America and Madagascar. So we're getting an idea of how these faunas are, who the members are, what they're related to, and what they can tell us with that evolutionary history. There's still a lot more work to go, but this is really an exciting like peek into that time period that we only can speculate it before, but now we had the fossils actually show that this was the case. I'm really excited to see how that develops. And of course, inspiring a new generation of paleontologists all over the world when they see like, yeah, there's dinosaurs everywhere and there's natural wonder everywhere and trying to get that international collaboration going and inspiration. Dr. Eric Gorsak is assistant professor at Midwestern University. Dr. Gorsak, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. For more on this dino, including specs for you to make your own 3D printed model, stomp on over to our website, LOE.org. Next week on Living on Earth, join us for a Thanksgiving feast with Chef Stephen Looney as he shares recipes from his Chickasaw heritage. So one of the most amazing things about the Three Sisters is the corn. We have something called Bashova. Bashova is a white pearl hominy that's been dried. So with that, I like to take the Bashova, uh, slow cook it for about 16 hours with pork, 
usually pork butt. And then usually within the last hour and a half of the cooking process, I'll add black beans and generally yellow squash, but I really like to add butternut squash to it because it holds up a lot better. So you have this really intense corn flavor balanced with the the fattiness and the, the saltiness of the pork. And then you have the sweetness of the butternut squash in there. And then you get these nice little hits of earthiness from the beans. And it's a very complex and depth of a dish for, you know, something that's just, you know, corns, beans, and squash. Tune into Living on Earth next week to hear that and much more. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Paloma Beltran, Josh Kroon, Swayam Gagneja, Maddie Hibbs, Mozzie Ingram, Mark Kausch, Mark Seth Lender, Don Lyman, Sarah Mahaney, Sophia Pandelitas, Jake Rigo, L. Wilson, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Learstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth and find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. And you can write to us at comments at LOE.org. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Jenny Doring. And I'm Ainsley O'Neill. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems.